Yes, we are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It's called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toladano. John Wall doesn't need no introduction. It's an insider's look at the NBA and culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick of the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall, will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a new way to bet on things outside of sports with Kalshi. Maybe you thought uh, on the future of TikTok. Will Congress ban it? Or won't they? Will Taylor Swift's album win album of the year? Will Biden's approval rating go up? Will it go down? Or inflation? You can trade futures on all of that and make money if you're correct. You're smart. You know things. Bet on it. $20 bonus if you go to Kalshi.com slash stereo. Spelled K-A-L-S-H-I and deposit $50. Kalshi.com slash stereo. Get in the game. There is no guarantee of performance. An investor could lose their entire investment. Investment fees. iHeartMedia does not recommend any investments. See further disclosures at Kalshi.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The I Am Rappaport Stereo Stereo Podcast Live. Live. You're down with Rappaport, yes I am. 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 You better tune in, IamRappaport.com. Cause every single podcast, you know he drops bombs. I seen him on set, a seasoned vet with true talent. Catch him on his way to CrossFit, rocking the new balance. He asked me to do the track, cause he know I rhyme elite. But I'm just waiting for the Robert De Niro line of the week. Breakfast of champions, toasted bagel, cream cheese, and locks. This is I Am Rappaport, the show never stops. You might catch him out in public, stretching his knees. But if you don't listen to the show, yo, wiggle, please. Wiggle, please. This is the I Am Rappaport podcast. Senor Michael Rappaport. What up? It's your boy DJ EFN, Crazy Hood Productions, one half of the Drink Champs podcast. And I just want to say salute and congratulations for your 1,000th episode and that's huge, man. You know, trust me, I know uh, being in the podcast game and we could only wish and hope to get to a thousand like you. So so shout out to the I Am Rappaport podcast and everybody in your team. Congratulations, man. From Drink Champs, DJ EFM. Peace. This is a cold opening of the 1,000th I Am Rappaport Stereo Podcast. This is 
episode 1000 of the I Am Rappaport Stereo Podcast, the world's most disruptive podcast. My name is Michael Rappaport, a.k.a. the Gringo Mandingo, a.k.a. the Sultan of Sniff, a.k.a. the White Chocolatito, a.k.a. White Magic Mike, a.k.a. White Mike, a.k.a. the Jewish Jake LaMotta, a.k.a. Mr. New York, a.k.a. Mr. Two. One, two, a.k.a. the disruptive warrior. And what could I say? I never thought that podcasting would take it this far. This is the, man, this is crazy. It's the 1,000th episode of the podcast, and I got very, very, very exciting special guest, Hall of Famer, NBA Hall of Famer icon, Two-time dream team Olympic gold medalist, New Yorker, great New Yorker, great guy, someone who I looked up to before I met him, Chris Mullen from St. John's University, from Power Memorial High School, Zavarian High School, Golden State Warriors, Indiana Pacers, joining me on the I Am Rappaport Stereo Podcast, and it's a fantastic interview with somebody that, like I said, I really just, I mean, sort of idolized uh, as a kid when I was growing up playing basketball. And uh, I just wanted to just take a moment to just, first of all, thank all the listeners. The millions, literally, millions of people have heard the I Am Rappaport Stereo podcast. And I just want to, first of all, thank all the fans, the new fans, the old fans, the day one fans, the episode 100 fans, the episode 500 fans, the fans we got last week, and all the fans in between, um, started doing the podcast literally on a whim in 2014, which is crazy. And, and when I think back to 2014, so much in the world has changed, so much in my life has changed personally, so much has changed professionally, and I just appreciate the support, I, I appreciate the patience from the fans. I appreciate all the people that I've gotten to meet. I appreciate every single person who's ever stopped me in an airport, in a Starbucks, on the street, who have supported the podcast, who've listened to the podcast. It really means a lot. It really, really, really means a lot. Um, and like I said, you know, when we started doing the podcast podcasts were just not what they are today. Not everybody even knew what a podcast was. It's so cool to have been doing it for going on eight years, and we're just getting started. You know, if you've been listening from the beginning, you've known the ebbs, the flows, the the highs, the lows, the controversy, the guests, and everything in between. Um, it's just been so much fun, but we've done a thousand episodes, and I was talking to the Dust Brothers who have been with me from every episode, every incident, every subject, every edit, making me sound great when I didn't feel great, making me sound great probably when I didn't sound great. It's been a true team effort with my guys, Miles Davis, who's Asian, and Jordan Winter, the Dust Brothers, a.k.a. the Bleach Brothers, literally holding me down 
every single episode. Sound snafus, um, you know, when I've been in shitty moods, when I've been in good moods, when I've been, you know, in weird locations, it's just everything. They've been rocking with me from day one and their lives have changed. They've grown and, uh, you know, we've grown together and the fans, we, you know, I've grown with you and hopefully you've grown with me. And, um, but I was tripping cause we were talking about doing a thousand episodes and we're saying how many things in your life have you actually done 1000 times? Like, have you played 1000 basketball games? Have you been to the gym a thousand times? Have you seen a thousand movies? You know, they talk about 10,000 hours being the the marker of becoming an expert. I don't know if that applies for podcasting because I feel like I'm somewhat of an expert, but I feel like I have plenty of room to grow and to improve and to just continue to kick ass and continue to disrupt. And as you know, when I say disrupt, it doesn't necessarily mean bad. It doesn't necessarily mean outrageous it just means to, for me, what disruption means for me on this episode, it just means to be yourself, just means to be honest to yourself, to be true to yourself, to be trusting of yourself. Because in any platform, whether it's show business, which is what I am only familiar with, but in any in any business and any, you know, life, everybody has their trials and tribulations. And the most important thing is to stay true to yourself and stay truly, truly disruptive. But I am the Cal Ripken Jr. of podcasting. 1,000 fucking episodes. Cal Ripken, Michael Rappaport. Michael Rappaport, Cal Ripken. And the other day I said, I don't think we took a week off. And the Dust Brothers corrected me. They said, we've never taken a week off. There's been some weeks where... Just a couple. In eight years, we've only done one episode. But the majority of the time, it's like clockwork. Tuesday morning, Friday morning, you know disruption is coming live and direct. I know you hear the sirens. That's because I'm in the OG gloom tomb here in New York City. But we've done it all. We've had we've had a bunch of weeks where we did three episodes we had a uh, one week where we did four episodes and I wish I could podcast every day. I do. I really do. Cause I have so much to say. And you know, like I said at the start, you know, it's the fans, it's you guys, it's the listeners, it's the people, um, that have been rocking with the show, whether you've been rocking from day one or, uh, you know, last week, cause we pick up new, uh, fans, new listeners every single week. You know, we obviously we have the Rapper Pack in the United States. We have the Rapper Pack in Buffalo. We have the Rapper Pack in Texas. Rapper Pack in California, of course, the New York Rapper Pack. We have the Rapper Packs abroad. We have the Brazilian Rapper Pack, the Saudi Arabian Rapper Pack, the Polish Rapper Pack. We have the Australian Rapper Pack. We have the New Zealand Rapper Pack, the French France contingent, the Canadian Rapper Pack. And I'm forgetting pl- the Mexico Rapper Pack. The Rapper Pack community is a worldwide thing because what? The I Am Rapport Stereo Podcast is a worldwide phenomenon. It started as a worldwide phenomenon and it continues to gain speed and gain momentum. And some of the guests, you know, the Danny Aiello, the late, great Danny Aiello, so many people have been Aiello'd. 
So many people have gotten the Willie Hutch treatment. We've had Marv Albert on the podcast. We've had Mark Ruffalo, Regina Hall, Juliette Lewis, Jake LaMotta. I'm the Jake LaMotta of podcasting. Jake LaMotta, before he passed, was on the podcast. Martin Scorsese. So many athletes. Warren Sapp. Lamar Odom. So many just great, exciting moments. You know, Alec Baldwin. Shooter McGavin. Chris Hansen. And there's so much more to come. And I just wanted to just wax a little poetically because I just truly appreciate... Um, like I said, everybody uh, letting me evolve, letting me grow, letting the show grow, letting the, the show let its hair down, and continuing to try literally every single episode to give blood on the mic because that's what my intention is, to make it purely personal and entertaining every single show because it is a show. It is a show and it is a show for you, the people. Okay, because if I'm podcasting and no one's listening, where do you want me? Bellevue. Preferably in a straitjacket. Hopped upon some of that one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Anyway, without further ado, episode 1000 with my man, special guest. This is a great interview, guys. This is a dope, dope, dope interview. Special guest from Brooklyn, New York. Chris Mullen, Miles Jordan, a.k.a. the Bleach Brothers, a.k.a. the Dust Brothers. Start this 1,000th episode off with something real nice. Start this puppy off with something real loud. But most importantly, start the 1,000th episode off with something. Miles, dig deep. Give me something real, real funky. See, I am Rappaport Stereo Podcast. Liggity, let's fucking go. Ain't no fact checking. Stereo Podcast, Chris Mullen, Brooklyn Royalty, Humble, we're going to get the humbleness out of him, <laughs> they got Vinny Barbarino, they got Tony Monero, they got Chris Mullen, they got Jay-Z, they got Biggie Smalls, they got Chris Mullen, Brooklyn's finest, one of Brooklyn's finest. Don't forget, do or die, Bed-Stuy, Iron Mike Tyson. There's, the list goes on. <laughs> but the, the point the point that I'm making, Molly, is that we talk about this Brooklyn, especially Brooklyn basketball. For some reason, your name sometimes gets left off the list or you're just squeezed in there. So I know you're humble. I know you don't like talking about your career. I never get to see you talk so much about your career. And I, I think you're humble. You're low-key, which I respect. We're going to knock all the humility. We're going to go back in the days. I can only talk about so many things with you on the I Am Rapport Stereo podcast, but I've always been a fan, uh, and, and I want to jump right into it. You grew up in Brooklyn, New York. The high school basketball scene, when you were 10th, 11th, 12th grade, there's so many players in New York City at the time. This is when New York truly was king, despite what anybody wants to say. Now they say New York isn't the best and all that stuff. But talk about the, the high school basketball 
Brooklyn team, who was there, who were the players, and how you emerged at the time? Because it wasn't social media where you could connect. How did you emerge to play for Riverside Church? How did you emerge from your neighborhood to sort of be that guy that, that was uh, moving around? You're a white dude in New York City in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, Michael, my pleasure to be with you, man. Love being on your podcast. Big fan of yours as well. Yeah, so so without like going back, you got you got to get the history a little bit, right? The history of New York City basketball goes way, way back. Billy Cunningham, Lenny Wilkins, Kareem, Tiny Archibald, Connie Hawkins. You know, this is this is a rich, rich tradition. So it was born and bred in the streets, right? In the parks. You know, we didn't have access to gyms. Uh, like they do now. Uh, as you said, a lot of your reputation was gained on a daily basis by word of mouth, by how you played, not not the junk you spoke and all that stuff. That was part of it maybe, but you had to go up there and show up every single day because to gain your reputation, to gain your respect. For me, you know, I grew up in Flatbush, uh, pretty much, you know, Irish, Catholic, white, Italian, Jewish. You know, we all had our little neighborhoods. Um, but not till I went to high school in Manhattan did I kind of branch out and, and get exposed to a uh, different style of basketball, mm -hmm. different cultures, kids with different upbringings than me. So I went to Powell Memorial Academy, which is on 61st in Amsterdam, legendary school, obviously. Kareem. Kareem, Len Elmore, had some Jap Trimble, some incredible basketball history in that school alone. Um, and that league was Rice High School, Mount St. Michael, St. Raymond's, All Hollows. The Bronx Manhattan League was, it was a really, really tough league. My older brother Rod went there, uh, so that I kind of followed in his footsteps. Uh, it was a you know, big commute for me from Flatbush up there. It took um, you know, like 90 minutes. Right. That alone was an education for me. Right. Jumping on the you know, B-41 bus down Flatbush Avenue, jumping on the number three train up to you know, 42nd Street, transfer over to one train to go to, you know, 59th Street, Columbus Circle, walking over to power. So at that point, you know, now all my friends were not from Brooklyn. I had friends from Harlem, the Bronx, Hell's Kitchen. So uh, Mario Eli was a teammate of mine at Powell Memorial. A few other guys on my team. I never, I, I resented him when he did the kiss of death in the garden with the Spurs when they won the championship. Yeah, he, he was nasty, man. He actually, and, and this is. This I did is, not appreciate him doing the kiss of death. Well. That wasn't cool. It was a kiss of death, though. With the Rockets. It was with the yeah, Rockets. Yeah, it was uh, Rockets at Phoenix. That that was Phoenix to get to the wind up getting to the final. I was on the Western Conference Finals. Yeah, that wasn't cool. He didn't need to do the but kiss he did, of death. But he did win a championship at the Garden with Kenny Smith, two New York City kids. Yeah, Le I, legendary. I, I, I get that. But I, I still I resented the kiss of death in the but Garden. But you got to understand Mario's background. He, he actually was cut from our freshman team. So he carried that forever. He's got that chip on his shoulder to this day. Okay. From 96 in Amsterdam. Okay. You know the hood. I got it. So, Let's stay focused so, on you. Yeah, so we're we'll get power. to marry one another yeah, time. Yeah, we're at power, and, you know, I'm playing with these guys from the city and, and a few guys that play at Riverside Church. My older brother, Rod, had played there at Riverside Church. So my dad, you know, you, you said it. We're talking late 70s, early 80s. New York's a pretty rough place. Subway's, you know, pretty rough. So I'm 14 to 15. The fact that my brother, Rod, went up there and had no problems made it okay for me to go. So he paved the way for me. He was the trailblazer for me to, you know, to go up there and play Riverside. Um, and now you're talking about, in that day and age, there's only two AAU teams. The word AAU, that term wasn't around. It wasn't even, it was just, it was an all-star team, basically. 
So it wasn't 12 on every block. There was basically 24 kids playing in that AAU system. And what were the Gout, teams? Riverside Church and the Gauchos, which was based out of the Bronx. Two, you know, so if you were top, there was somewhat tryouts, invitation only. And so anyway, th through POW, I wound up going to Riverside Church. And really, that's when I really got exposed to a different style of play, a different level of competition, uh, trash talk, all those things that, you know, are synonymous with New York City basketball, uh, especially up in, in Harlem, the Bronx, you know, Queens. And so now we're traveling all over. Some of the guys I played with, we were talking, we just spoke with Eddie Pickney. You know, he's one of my dear friends. Ed Pinkney when you were a teenager. Easy Ed Pinkney. Played with him. He played both. He played Riverside Gout. Guys would bounce back and forth. One of the teams I played for Riverside, five of those guys went to Iona College. Who were they? Rory Grimes, Tony Hargraves, Troy Truesdale, all New York City legends through high school. Uh, Steve Burt. Right. Big time scorer. Played in the NBA. Gary Springer. Right. Who at that time was the number one high school player in the country. Right. And he went to Iona College. So there was a point in time, and you, you talked about the high schools, right? So things have changed quite a bit now, but we actually went to city schools and stayed in the city. Kids don't even stay in the city for high school anymore. Right. That's a big difference. So now you're developing rivalries almost through grade school, and you're seeing the same guys. And as you said earlier, you develop your reputation each and every day. It doesn't last. You have a good game. That doesn't last for two weeks. You had a good game yesterday. What are you going to do today? And a lot of time for me, a lot of time being the only white guy, I had to like prove myself to even come back the next day. Because if I play like trash, everything's I might time. not be invited back. So, you know, looking back, it really prepared me for, you know, bringing it each and every day, which that's what pros do. Pros bring it every day. Anyone can play good once in a while. The pros bring it every single day. And, and to, to do that, you need not only motivation, a little pressure on you. And that's pressure to go prove yourself each and every day. You know, there's something to that, that you feel that pressure, that stress to perform. So when you met with Ed Pinckney, was he one of the guys outside of the games with the church? Because pickup games, if you go to different neighborhoods, especially a white dude, you go to different neighborhoods, who was sort of taking you around to play ball, just pickup games in different hoods? Because that's where, like... Dudes with no name, but they play hard. Like New York City street basketball, even in my time, like dudes play hard and they might not even play for a high school team. You're like, yo, who is this dude? Oh, he just, that's Jeff. He's, he's right. nice, but he doesn't play. Yeah, I used to go, I had a buddy of mine lived in uh, on 20th and 7th, right? We'd go down to West 4th Street, the cage, right? Play yep. down there. That's straight, you walk on the court, you win, you stay, you lose, you're done. Again, you win five, six, seven games in a row, all of a sudden they're like, yo, this guy could play. Right. But you got to come back the next day and do it again. We'd go to Carmine Street Gym. That was an indoor gym in the old school, uh, almost like a boxing gym on uh -huh. Carmine Street and play there. Same thing. Can you go in there and win a bunch of games, gain your reputation? Um, but with Riverside Church, we were going to uh, Mitchell Houses where Tiny Archibald grew up. That was his tournament. We'd play in Elm Corps, which was out in Queens. Someday we'd play three or four games a day right. in different boroughs. Right. So little by little, you know, in Riverside, we, I don't think we lost many games, maybe one. <laughs> we didn't lose many games. So we were going around all over the boroughs. On the train? 
Or the bus. Uh, we used to, I used to meet the van. I used to actually meet the van on 125th. And, and oh, they had a van. Right over the Tribal Bridge. And then I'd get in that van, they, they would take us around. Yeah, so cruising the van with, with these guys, getting to know them. It opened up my eyes to stuff more than basketball. Right. But it also toughened me up. I was on high alert all the time from a competitive standpoint, uh, from a safety standpoint, all those things. I mean, looking back, I think I learned more just uh, traveling the city uh, by subway, by bus, by van, different neighborhoods, different vibes. I think I learned more in that period of my life than any class I took in high school or college. I'm sure. Who were some of the names besides Ed? Who were some of the gauchos? I mean, New York basketball at the time was, you know, Strickland's a little younger than you, I think. Yeah, so... Pearl. And talk about Pearl because he passed. And oh, I always yeah. think, like, just talk about some of the, the other guys that were, yeah, you so, were playing so, against, playing with. So right below me, so with me we had uh, Eddie Pickney, Jerry Reynolds, Beetle Washington. Beetle's, Pearl's brother. Not his brother, but no. the same... same he went, he went to Alexander Hamilton. Okay. Yeah, but he, he was a heck of a player. Jerry Reynolds was like ahead Iceman. of his time. Yeah, Iceman. Stefan Marbury's older brothers all were playing at Lincoln at that time. You know, right before me was Bernard and Albert King. You know, so there was an incredible amount of plays throughout the city. Um, but right around my time, I, went, I wound up going to school in 1981, right? And I'm a freshman, sophomore, and we're recruiting these four guards, Mark Jackson, Kenny Smith, Pearl Washington, and a kid named Kenny Hutchinson. All incredibly talented guards, all in New York City schools. Mark's at Lachlan, Strick's at Truman, Kenny's right down the block from St. John's, Kenny Smith at Archbishop Malloy, and I think Kenny Hutchinson is at Benjamin Franklin. So this is four guys we're recruiting. And at some point, you know, Coach Conasec is like, you know, whoever signs first, I'm taking. Because they're all great, great players. So Mark Jackson winds up signing with us. Um, and at that point, probably not the most heralded of those four. Right. But wind up having the greatest career of all of them. Right. So Walter Berry, another guy we wind up signing at St. John's. Walter was one of my favorite players because he was left-handed. He had everybody doing that shot that he did. You know, we'd go up and sort of, why don't you think Walter was able to transcend into the NBA? Yeah, first of all, he's the one guy to this day everyone asks me about. You know, if I'm if I'm back, he was he, a player of the year. Naismith, he was 86 player of the year. Just a unique game though, and always had huge games against Georgetown. And, and like you said, just a unique style, very unorthodox. With his shot, he would he would release it at all different uh, going up, angles. going down. Yeah, and, he, and every time he dunked, he would fall down. But to this day, that's what, like everyone's like, oh, what is that guy Walter Berry doing now? But yeah, his game did not transition as much because at that point in time, they had legit bigs. Because Walter was what, 6'7? He's like 6'8, but was more of a center, played inside, didn't really step out, didn't really have a jump shot. So at that point in time, you were either big or you played on the perimeter. Uh, they, we didn't have that positionless type basketball, uh, right? But he went overseas, had a great career overseas. He did. And he's just a really good guy. But a legend, you know, again, a New York City legend. People always bring his name up to me all the time. They always want to know what Walter Berry's doing. Legend. You went to St. John's, and there's so many questions I could ask you. I could only ask you so many questions in one podcast. You went to St. John's. What other schools were recruiting you? What other schools were you considering? Yeah, so I visited coming out of when I was a senior in high school. I visited uh, Villanova, 
Duke, Virginia, and Louisville. That were my four visits. And basically, I had a unique relationship with Coach Conaseca. I had gone to his basketball camp since I was 12 years old. So I knew him as a coach. I knew him as a person. So when I took those visits, and I had great visits. They were all very nice. But in my mind, I, when I went on those weekend visits, I was always looking, do I have something here that I don't have at home? You already had this. Yeah, I, I knew St. John's was a, was a great place, a good fit for me. I love the coach. So every time I went, you know, for that weekend, I was like, wow, this is really nice. But then I got home by Monday or Tuesday, it wore off. Like, I was like, I'm good, man. I, I don't need to go anywhere else. Um, Coach K was his first year at Duke, his first recruiting year. Really impressive. My mom, I think, looking back, I think she kind of wanted me to go there to a degree. They didn't have that pedigree yet. Right. They hadn't become Duke yet. Coach right. K wasn't Coach K yet. Yeah, so it was, uh, you know, I kind of just really, it was really Coach Conaseca. That's why I went there. It wasn't, you know, at that point in time, St. John's, it was a commuter school. It was basically going to, you know, extension of high school. So it wasn't the facilities. It wasn't, you know, all the rah-rah stuff. It was my relationship with Coach Conaseca. Because even when I was just there, when you were back at St. John's, I'm like, this is St. John's? Yeah. <laughs> like, so I imagine when you played there, it was like even less like Yeah. Because yeah, it was no big deal. It's not. It's a small school. Yeah, especially back in the '80s, where it was a 100% commuter school. So when you know three There's o'clock, no dorms, nothing. Now there is, but there was not. But it was. It was. Did the, you live at home when you played there? No, we we got apartments near school, so that was nice. But it was not your typical college experience. But it just shows you the power and the trust and the love that we all have for Coach Conaseca. That's what made it work. Because right. all, if you, when you went on the other visits, there was way more attractive things at those other campuses. But the thing that kept bringing players to that university was Coach Lou Conaseca. Right, because this is in Queens. No disrespect to Queens, but it's like, it's like out there. Yeah. Well, let me jump into this. The Big East at the time, which is no more, there's been documentaries, movies. There should be a Ken Burns 12-part documentary. ESPN did a great Big East thing. We all, uh, the fans reminisce about it. I'm sure the players reminisce about it. The, it was such a unique time. There were so many good players in so many, the Carrier Dome, you know, you'd see these games on ESPN, Villanova. I didn't even know where the, I'm 11, 12 years old. I'm like, where the fuck is Villanova? <laughs> you know, and Boston College. When did you realize that the Big East was becoming a thing, and what were those games like? Yeah, so, you know, growing up, I would watch St. John's, but they weren't on TV all the time. Local TV yeah, only. Yeah, local TV, maybe on a Saturday afternoon, ECAC game of the week or something like that. But again, I, I had this relationship with Coach Conaseca beyond, you know, college basketball, things like that. I got to know him as a, you know, as a person. Um, but the perfect storm, right? ESPN starts in 1979. The Big East is formed by Dave Gavitt, right. who was the head coach at Providence, right. your basketball visionary. And he basically saw this opportunity to create a local league. You know, you had those big football league, the Big Ten, and the big, uh, you know, out here the, at that point was probably the Pac-8, Pac uh -huh. which is the Pac-12 now. But he had this vision of creating a local East Coast basketball-only conference, which a lot of you know, coaches and, and I think athletic directors were, you know, not too keen on it at the first because you can make your own schedule. If you get your 20 wins, you get in the tournament, you kind of controlled your own destiny where now all of a sudden your, your schedule's carved out and you're playing all these great teams, you know, home and home. And 
you know, it puts a little more pressure. So I think at first it was like an unconventional theory to these coaches, but it wound up being the best thing for all those schools. So 1979, it starts, you know, it's St. John's, Syracuse, and we know all the teams and all the legendary coaches, Coach Conaseca, Jim Beheim. I mean, it's literally like John a, a, Thompson, casting, like a casting call. Roly, it really is. And like when you look back at that documentary on ESPN, really, because it it's like the spaghetti guy in, in Villanova, John Thompson with his presence, Beheim's nuts, Karnasekas nuts. I mean, these are personalities. But, but what it did, Michael, was it gave players like myself another reason to stay home, right? Uh, you didn't have to go away to get national exposure. So, and so the perfect storm was ESPN's growing. They need content. This league's formed. It's right in their backyard. Boom. ESPN, Big Monday. It made, they made each other. Right. ESPN made uh, the Big East, but the Big East put ESPN on the map. Right. And it exploded. It was the timing, which we do not control, right? You always have to be prepared for opportunity, but you never know when it's going to come. Right. So all of a sudden, look, the, the Big East had, it was 79, 80, 81. So I got to school in eight, it was two, three years old, right? They had some good play. Louis R., who, you know, rest in peace, he right, just, passed just passed away. Roosevelt Bowie, you know, Reggie Carter. Georgetown has some great players, John Doran. They had some great, beautiful games, and you know they played at Manly Fieldhouse before the Carrier Dome. So it was it was in motion, but this business connection with ESPN and the Big East just exploded. And the players. And the, but but also yeah, so Patrick Ewing, who's the number one player in the country. In your year, what year did he come? Same in? year, same year, nineteen eighty one. When all, was the first time you saw Patrick play? First time I saw him in person was at the McDonald's All American Game. Who else was in that game? Michael Jordan, Bill Wennington. Wait a second, wait a second. Your high school game? Okay, you fucked me up with that. <laughs> okay, start again. Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, Bill Wennington. Uh, what are the pros? Adrian Branch, who was the MVP of that game. Uh, West Coast was full of UCLA. Nigel Miguel, full of UCLA guys. But that was the f first time I was with them. Patrick... I had played against Patrick in the Boston shootout, which was a tournament post-high uh, school. Uh, I played for Riverside Church, and we played the Boston team, which Patrick was on. On that team was Pearl Washington, Dwayne Johnson, myself, Jerry Reynolds had a nasty dunk on So, and, and our coach was Tiny Archibald for that tournament. And the Boston team had Patrick, Dwayne McLean, Gary McLean, the guys that played at Villanova. Wow. Their coach was Dave Cowens. Wow. So that you know, that was the first time I played against him, right? And then obviously we all knew who he was. He was number one player in the country. But getting back to the Big East, it gave him a reason to stay on the East Coast. You didn't have to go to Carolina or to UCLA to get this platform. So Patrick actually visited Boston College. He was from uh Massachusetts right. there. He was from Cambridge Ridge and, Ridge and Latin High School in, in Massachusetts. He visited BC, obviously went to Georgetown. Eddie Pickney, right? Another great, great uh, high school, big time recruit. Went to Villanova. Me and Bill Wennington went to St. John's. All of a sudden, this Big East is keeping their star players home. They're not leaving the East Coast. Right. And, you know, the first time I really felt the impact of this exposure on ESPN was, you know, after my college career, I come out here to Golden State and all the kids know who I am. They all watch the, you know, out here on the West Coast. 
the big Monday comes on at 4 p.m. They rush home from school. Right. And they watch the Big East. Right. Now, all of a sudden, and you saw in that documentary, Jim Beheim goes, I, I fly into L.A. to recruit a kid. And the baggage thing, oh, you're Pearl Washington's coach. Right. So that the um, exposure and the popularity of the just exploded. And um, it was a phenomenon, the way it came together so quickly. So I think it started 79. In 1985, three of four Big East teams were in the Final Four. Which were who? Villanova, Georgetown, and St. John's. The fourth team was, at that time, known as Memphis State University. Right. Now the University of Memphis. Now, again, I can't get to everything. We've mentioned Pearl a few times. He's one of my favorite players. How good was Pearl in high school? What was so unique about him going into college. Just give a little homage to the great Pearl Washington. Yeah, no doubt. Dwayne Pearl Washington. I met him when he was a freshman in high school. Really? And at that point in time, he had an NBA game already. He was physically advanced more than anybody, strong, lower body, quick. He had a unique combination of, of strength and quickness and incredible ball handling. You know, he had the Tim Hardaway crossover before everyone knew who Tim Hardaway was. He, in my opinion, he brought the crossover to mainstream because Tim, Nick Van Hexel, Tim uh, led to Allen Iverson and so forth and so on. And Tim talks about the influence of Pearl. Right. And, and that's why I always like, when you talk about point guards, when you talk about dribbling, when you talk about any of this crossover stuff, what it's done now, like it should be called almost now the, the Pearl Washington move. Yeah, he, he revolutionized the ball handling. You think about it, Mike, and you watch those Georgetown teams. They, they were big. That Georgetown team, the years out, they were an NBA team. They had five or six NBA players on their roster. Nasty, tough defense. First and foremost, full court man to man. Pearl would walk through that thing like they were standing still. And, you know, the Georgetown press was something everybody feared. And you had a press breaker. Syracuse just gave the ball to Pearl and said, get out of my way. I'm dribbling through this thing. I got this. And then, you know, he made Georgetown play a zone, which they never did. And usually against a zone, you needed shooting. Pearl just dribbled through it and finished over the top. So he, he was a nasty and he's so ahead of his time, you know. I mean, when we, when we would play Syracuse and Coach Karnasek would, you know, go over the scouting report on the board – he would jokingly say it, but almost he had like somewhat, he goes, this guy Pearl, he's just a different type player. He goes, I swear to God, I think I coached against him in the ABA like 10 years ago. That's how long, by the time he was in eighth grade, he was so mature as a player and, and you knew so much about him. Again, pre-social media, right? it was all by word of mouth and by him going to different parts of the city and just killing in the parks and just gaining this reputation and he backed it up. And he was a great, great guy. He, he was loved the game. He was charismatic. I mean, way beyond his years, in, on and off the court, really. He was a, you know, a guy I loved. Uh, it was sad to see, you know, what happened to him. But right. my fact, me and Ed Pickney went to that funeral together. So That's great. Now, when you mentioned your high school All-American, we just skirted over some guy, M Michael George, George yeah. some guy. There's a new way to bet on things outside of sports with Kalshi. Maybe you thought uh, on the future of TikTok. Will Congress ban it? Or won't they? Will Taylor Swift's album win album of the year? Will Biden's approval rating go up? Will it go down? Or inflation? You can trade futures on all of that and make money if you're correct. You're smart. 
You know things. Bet on it. $20 bonus if you go to Kalshi.com slash stereo. Spelled K-A-L-S-H-I and deposit $50. Kalshi.com slash stereo. Get in the game. There is no guarantee of performance. An investor could lose their entire investment. Investment fees. iHeartMedia does not recommend any investments. See further disclosures at Kalshi.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. At that time, who was Michael Jordan? Was he any better? Like, you're an All-American. You guys are all young. You got egos. Everybody's from all over the country. You're not growing up watching them on Instagram. At that moment, when you're a high school All-American, who was this Jordan kid? Yeah, so Michael... Was he any better than anybody else? Well, first, you see the name Michael Jordan in magazines as a first-team All-American or whatever, and see Wilmington, North Carolina. Like, okay, like what? Like... Right, you're the best in Wilmington. Yeah, you're Wilmington. I'm from New York City. Wilmington, North Carolina. Give me a break. But you asked me the first time I saw Patrick. The first time I saw Michael physically was at that McDonald's All-American game in 1981 in Wichita, Kansas. And at those games, it's, you know, it's after the season. It's just a showcase. You have some walkthrough practices. You know, I remember getting to Wichita and, you know, we had like 9 a.m. practice. So by the time I got in the flight, you get up there, you're kind of tired. Everyone's sitting on the bench, just kind of like, okay, we're going to have like a little walkthrough. And there's this guy out there just grabbed the basketball. He's going up and down full court by himself, dunking and running. I'm like, whoa, like, what is this guy doing? Like, this is kind of insane, the athleticism. And, and, and early in the morning, and that was Michael. In that particular game, he had a great, he had like 30, I think at that time was the high. I think he had 30, maybe 35 points. He did not get the MVP, which later on he used as motivation. Oh, Jesus. These are one of these, this oh, is yeah, one of no these moments. Well, well, Adrian Branch got the MVP who wound up going to Maryland. So then now they're in the ACC oh, God. conference together. Yeah, that didn't work out too good for Adrian. So that was one of those, that's one of those things Michael held on last to. Dance and he moment. should have got the MVP. He was clearly the MVP. He did not get it. But he used that, you know, how Michael was uh, historically known for using these snubs as motivation. That was that's one, one that's never been. That's probably an outtake from the the last. But that's dance. legit. That's legit. Did he seem like a great athlete? 
or a very, very, very good athlete who could play ball. Like when you just think about that memory and it's hard because you played against him, played with him. But like at that time when you saw him, like could you even fathom that he was? Well, so McDonald's All-American game, you know, then he goes, obviously goes to North Carolina. I played against him twice when he was in college, played with him in the 84 Olympics. But you talk about, you know, when I first saw him, I, I, friends of mine, you know, uh, tell me to this day, we remember when you came back from Wichita, you saying that you saw the best play you've ever seen before. And we were like, yo, they're like, really? Like all those guys you play with in New York and all those guys in the Big East and, you know, whatever these, how's this guy the best? So I don't remember saying it, but people say, they said, no, you. no, you came back like, yo, this guy is different. So you asked me what set him apart was, yes, his athleticism was off the chart, the greatest athlete in the gym but was really fundamentally sound. Now, if you think about it, you watch Michael Jordan's highlights and you see the sick dunks, you know, just the, na you know, the nasty dunks over people and just phenomenal clutch shots. But if you watch that entire possession, he does something fundamentally sound, you know, perfect denial defense, uh, good weak side help. He's very fundamentally sound basketball player. He moved without the basketball beautifully. Playing at North Carolina, you know, a lot of people said the only person that held him down was Dean Smith. But also, he, to me, he was well coached in high school and at North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And at North Carolina, he also played with star players. He played with James Worthy. He played with Sam Perkins. So he understood the team game, mm -hmm. yet had that incredible athletic ability but the knowledge and the feel for the game with and without the basketball. So you put all that together and you got Michael Jordan and, and incredibly competitive beyond compare. That was real. That, yeah, still is. <laughs> it's like if you see him now, like he'll, it's something, well, I mean, a yeah. race, golf. Yeah, golf. You're going to try and take your lungs, man. Now, we talked about Pearl. We talked about uh, these other guys. I want to talk about you. Where was your head at in terms of playing in the NBA your freshman, sophomore year? And your workouts were legendary too. Like if Instagram existed when you were in high school, your workouts, you'd be like one of these guys who'd be like, here's his workouts. Because I remember when I was in the eighth grade, I don't have to do the math, but there was an article about you in the New York Times and they talked about your workouts. Twofold question. Where was your head in terms of the reality of playing in the NBA. You're a kid from Brooklyn. You're playing in, in St. John's. But also talk to me about what you did when no one was around in the gym to compete at the level you competed in because you weren't that quick. I bring Slow this up. as molasses. Slow as molasses. You dunked the ball. The last time I saw you dunk the ball, St. John's was blowing out. Syracuse in carry dome. You bounced it. It was fancy. It was the fanciest Chris Mullen play ever. You bounced it yourself and dunk it. And if it had been on Instagram, the world would have stopped. Like it was one of those things where like, I didn't even know this fucking guy could touch the net. But just talk to me about your workouts and where your head was at in terms of playing in the NBA. Yeah. So Michael, that goes back to um you know, I was blessed to have a great family around me. You know, my older brother was an incredible athlete. I followed in his footsteps. The neighborhood I grew up in, we, we played every sport. We swam. We were on a swim team. We played Little League Baseball. We played stickball. We played wiffle ball. We played bounce ball. We played stoop ball. Everything was around sports. So whether it be, uh, you know, and my dad used to say that, that a lot of those games that I played as a kid really helped my hand-eye coordination. 
being ambidextrous, you know, doing all those street games. In a way, there's there's a transfer of that. You know, now kids they get so specific with one sport. It's, it was right. cool growing up and playing all those different sports. But I was blessed to have a great family, but an incredibly great coaches at a young age. Not only the way they taught me fundamentally how to play the game of basketball, but why I was playing. I was not playing to necessarily get to the NBA. I was playing and I was taught practice habits at a young age to get better that day, which sounds simple and sounds kind of obvious, but some that's not the deal now. The deal now is to get to that make that money, whatever mm -hmm. that materialistic thing is. And th th there's an end point there. I still enjoy the game of basketball. And I do believe it because that was the way I was introduced to it, the way I was taught it. So I lived, I lived on Troy Avenue. It was one block off Flappish Avenue. And on Flappish Avenue and Flatlands was a school called St. Thomas Aquinas. That was my grade school. So I could walk up there in one minute. My coach, uh, the janitor there, this guy named Wally Dean, gave me a key to the gym, but the deal they made was that when I went in there, I had to work on my game. I wasn't in there to be fucking around, you know, wasn't in there to be bringing other people in there and, you know, sneaking all this shit. If we're gonna give you the key, but you need to work on your game. And I would write some stuff down that I had to do. Which was what? Ball handling. And walk me, be- Simple as- I want basketball nerd right, shit. As this, so I'm in fourth, fifth grade, as simple as, Zigzag dribbling right hand, zigzag dribbling left hand back, you know, mic and drill, uh, free throws, and then then you could play. But there was a specific thing that I had to get done before I played. So it was right. a combination of skill development, then compete. Right. You do both. Right. Equally. Right. So it wasn't just because, you know, you, back then, if you were a shooter, it didn't mean, mean you could play. Right. There's a lot of guys who could shoot that couldn't play. Right. But there's a lot of guys who could play to who couldn't shoot. Right. So having both, I would, that was introduced to me at a young age. So from a young age, I always, even when I went to the park, I would, I would shoot and then play or play, then shoot. Always do both. Skill right. development, compete. Right. Compete, skill development. So that was ingrained in me at a young age. Thank God from this guy, Jack Alisi, Lou Piccola, my, my CYO coaches. The other thing was we, I had access to this gym and in my neighborhood, it was Sundays. We were at the I was at the gym from nine in the morning to ten at night, watching games, refing games, working the concession stand, working the front door, collecting money. I was just there all the time. So I'm watching girls' games, uh, young kids younger than me, kids older than me, just watching, uh, listening, you know, hanging around coaches. Uh, so I was blessed to have that fundamental uh, introduction to the game. And that carried on through high school and obviously in college. So, you know, to me, how you're introduced to the game and why you play the game is really important because at some point I would have reached an end point. Right. But that was not my thing. It wasn't to get just to the NBA. But so, so you asked me, who? so like when did I have that feeling that maybe I could or was that a dream? Yeah. Look, I love Walt Frazier. I love those Knicks teams. But that seems so far away. They were like way over there. Like for me, the Master Square Garden, I couldn't get there. You know what I mean? That, that seemed like not even a dream. But I mentioned Jack Alisi, who was my CYO coach. He also coached me at Zavarian High School. I remember driving with him. I was a junior. 
I had transferred school. I left power, transferred to Zavarian. I was sitting out, so I was training on my own. Jack was training me, trying to keep me in shape. So I was going to come into Zavarian and play that uh, January of my senior year because I had to sit out because I transferred. I remember driving with him, and he said, I remember I was in his car. He's like, have you ever thought about could you play in the NBA? I'm like, come on, man, no way. So he brought up a name, which at the time was, you know, someone compared to, he goes, you know, Ernie Grunfeld? I go, yeah, of course, Ernie and Bernie. He goes, you're six, four, six, five. That's what you are. I think you can shoot like him. And Ernie had made an all-star team. Right. Right. And it was the first time he put a name and someone to compare, like, you're similar to. Uh-huh. If he could do it, you could do it. Uh-huh. Look like, seem like, uh-huh. from here. Uh-huh. So all of a sudden, it's not that far-fetched. Uh-huh. Like, so maybe, maybe, but nah, but maybe. It's in the back of my head there. And then I have a really successful senior year. And then going to St. John's, even my freshman year at St. John's, I was not even thinking about the NBA. The first time it really popped in that it could be reality was my sophomore year, which was one of my favorite years ever. Why? We had a great team. Uh, I was really the young buck on a, on a veteran team. David Russell, Billy Goodwin, Bob Kelly, Kevin Williams, Bill Wendington was on that team. But I was a sophomore, and those guys were seniors. Did I say Billy Goodwin? Yeah. Say, yeah, so these guys were great veteran guys. We should have won a national championship. We were 28 and three. We lost up at the carry, don't we? Yeah. To Georgia, who wound up going to the Final Four. Right. But we, we really were one of the best teams in the country that year. But after that season, I remember I, I had a really good year, you know, efficient and, and, you know, just had a really good year. And I remember waking up one day and the New York Post was like, is Mullen going to go pro? Which I had never even, that wasn't a thing back then. But it was, I think the, the article rated, the top two guards, and I was in that mix. Who were the other ones? 83 was probably like Clyde Drexler. Oh, that, shit. That's the year NC State won the championship. Right, right, right. So it was Houston, NC State. Uh, Michael won 84. So 83 was a year before all those guys. But it's just an article that gets, gets yeah, put just, out there. That it could be. And I didn't think about it. It had no traction. But again, it's the second time. Like, oh, man, I'm kind of trending that way. Like... And it just, it motivates you more. Uh, it gets you like, it gets you hungry. Like, uh-huh. let me let me keep climbing. Let me keep climbing. And then, you know, 84, good season, Olympic team. Now, all of a sudden, that Olympic team I played on in 1984, shoot, I think eight of the, eight of those guys were top draft picks. I and the only, the only four were that we'd, we'd stay in the school. The 84 Olympic team tryouts, again, if there had been phones and video footage and it had been documented as well as some of the other things, I'm sure the footage is probably ridiculous. Everybody tried out. John Stockton, Carl Malone, Len Bias, Michael Jordan's on the team. Pearl Washington, John Stockton said Pearl Washington was the best player. I mean, I looked at the list of names. It's incredible. What do you remember about those tryouts? It was it Bobby Knight's the mm-hmm. coach. It's in Indiana. He's literally like, you have to make the team, right? That's a legitimate tryout. So 72 players are invited. College players. 72 of the top players. 
and the, the tryouts are in Bloomington, Indiana. Bobby Knight is at the height of his powers. You know, he hit 76. They had the undefeated season. He's one of the most powerful basketball people in the world at that point in time. The NBA is still second fiddle to college basketball at that point in time. College basketball was, uh, I think, more popular. Uh, those coaches had tremendous uh, power. And this is the spring of 84? April, April of 84 is when the tryout started. Because it was the Summer Olympics, obviously, in, in July and August. So we start, we report in April, 72 of us. Well, the team winds up being Alvin Robertson, Vern Fleming, Leon Wood, Steve Alford, myself. Concac? Well, then I was going to go be like Joe Klein, John Conkak, Jeff Turner, Sam Perkins, Wayman Tisdale, Patrick, and Michael. So it winds up being, I think that's 12. I think I got everybody. But before we get to the guys who made the team. Right, yeah. So that's what I was going to go. So that's the guys that made it. And you mentioned, okay, the guys that were cut at the very end. Um, so it goes from 72, and they cut it to like 40 send you home and bring you back to see if you're going to come back in shape. And it goes from 40 to 20. They send you home, bring you back. You know, it's a little mind game to see if you're going to come back in shape. Then at 20, you're together for a few weeks. And now it's, it's a battle every day. We're practicing three times a day, not twice. Three. three times a day. Three times a day, full, full practice. Not shoot-arounds, not taped up. You get arrested for that now, right? Probably, you go to jail. Probably so. Probably so. So at 20 guys, um, times a day, that's yeah, crazy. and you were going at it. You, you're battling at that point in time too. You, you mentioned dream. NBA players were not eligible. So this is the one and only time you get a chance to play for the Olympics. You know, so you were coming off 72 where we had that brutal loss. The medal was stolen from us by Russia. 76, we won 80. We boycotted. So 84, you know, it's a big thing, you know what I mean? It's a, the one and only time you get to play. So it's each and every practice session is pressure-packed, and you're trying to do everything you can to make that team. And dudes really want – it wasn't this laissez-faire thing. Dudes wanted to make that team. No, you wanted to be invited first and foremost, get invited, and then, yes, yeah, everyone was clawing, except for one guy, and we'll get to that in a minute. But Love this. So we're down to 20. Some of the guys that, that did not make it. Mark Price. How sick was Mark Price? So good. So good. Like, you talk about if they had, you know, he, he was doing shooting threes off pick and rolls. Cross your split, ass up. Splitting pick and rolls, shooting floaters, just dynamic. Quick as shit. Yeah, just, and, and a little kid from Oklahoma. Looked great, like Opie, like Richie Cunningham. Yeah, no doubt. He, he was nasty. He was skill personified. So nasty with that Cleveland team. He was so good. Uh, Antoine Carr, who had played a year overseas, he was over there killing, dunking everything. Carl Malone, cut. Who was Carl Malone at the time? When he, you saw, well, like, well, he was a, he was physically a monster, but again, like he played at Louisiana Tech. Did you see him play? I didn't see him play. I never saw him play. I saw him play at the tryouts, but I never saw Louisiana Tech play. Because there wasn't that interactive nah, thing that there is now. Right. So you didn't see some of these players. John Stockton. No one knew Gonzaga. No one even knew what Gonzaga was. Couldn't even pronounce it. He didn't know if it was a school or not. We thought maybe he was coming from a company. Gonzaga, but never made a mistake. Was was flawless and tough. He made to 16. Charles Barkley. 
what was he? So Charles was, you know, when we practiced, we were practicing this big, it was like six courts because it was 72 players. It was, you know, stations and full court games, things going on. The gym is packed with NBA scouts because that's now they're watching all the players for the draft. But all the best players are here in Bloomington. So everyone's there as, from, as far as the personnel and talent scouts and things like that. Charles is just dunking and, and hanging on the rim and everyone's just always looking at his court like, whoa, what's going on over there? And this guy was a freak. You know, he was, he was basically Zion Williamson. Zion Williams, that's who he was. You know, the, his body and his athleticism didn't make sense. He looked like he was out of shape, but he was the fastest and he could jump over the, you know, at the gym. It was pretty amazing. But when it got down to it, you know, I think Charles, he was totally focused on just getting in the draft, making a name for himself and moving on. But he came there, dominated, accomplished his goal and was a top five pick. But I do remember like, so Bobby, there was 16 of us he, and he, he announced the cuts and like I, he, he like, yeah, like, you know, like, like when you like were old in, school, like CYO, like, yo, you, you put the, the sheet up and you, you know, you check it in, but he just did it, you know, like these are the players that made it and the other four didn't. I think it was John, I think it was Mark Price, Charles, you know, the other guys were kind of, you know, upset and damn, Charles got up and said, yo, man, good luck to you guys. I'm on my way to the NBA. So I don't think he was so much into the whole Olympic experience at that point. Uh-huh. So goal accomplished. Uh, obviously, you know, his career speaks for itself. He wound up playing for two Olympic teams anyway later right. on, miraculously. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that experience, again, gives you that sense of, I'm with the best now, and I'm competing with them. Now it's legit. Like, now I got a chance to, like, make a career out of this. And that team, by the way, going back, I think at some point that group of players – and coaches will be recognized because it winds up being the last amateur Olympic gold medal won in basketball. Yeah, I mean, that experience and those, I mean, there's been documented, there's been things, I mean, that 84 Los Angeles Olympics was, so much was going on and there were so many Olympic stars, Mary Lou Retton, who I fell in love with, different podcast, fell in love with her, out of my mind. Carl Lewis. I mean, it was like, yeah. there were stars. It was oh, yeah. you know, you guys were a big deal for basketball fans, but basketball as a whole wasn't was. And then also the coverage where you'd see twenty minutes of gym, oh, mostly gymnastics because Mary Lou, Carl Lewis. Yeah, you see Moses. track and field, and that's that's what the Olympic sports were more of those because you didn't see them during the year. Basketball, they we saw you guys. They show part of our game and then break away. And you see a highlight, but you, like, but oh, you bring up you bring up Mary Lou Retton. It's funny. So we we're in L.A. We're staying. Don't at, talk about my girl. On USC Watch campus, yourself. okay, USC campus, and you have to take the buses over to the LA Sports Arena. That's where you had to congregate before you go into the march into the LA Sports Arena. So we're on the bus, and this is you know day zero. The Olympics haven't started yet. We're getting ready for opening ceremonies, and the gymnastic team is on our bus, and you know nice little girls and friendly. Lo and behold, ten days later, the biggest star in the world. Oh, shit. Was on our bus. That's crazy. It was crazy. funny so how you see, you know, they were kind of, you know, just happened to be on our bus, right? Right. So we're hanging, whatever. And then 10 days later, like, yo, she's like the biggest star in the world. That's crazy. And 10 days earlier, no one knew who she was. Right. We have, I have a photo, Carl Lewis. So we're, we're, our whole team's kind of getting ready to walk in, and he's hanging with us, trying, you know, just hanging with us. It's a, but again. That's crazy. He's hanging with us, but 10 days later, he's way bigger stars 
than any of us were after those Olympic games. That's cool. Was Bobby Knight the motherfucker as a coach, or did you see a human, or was it always just because, like, you know, as a kid, I remember I went to the five star basketball camp, mm-hmm. and it was like the guy from Full Metal Jacket walked. It was like, and then you'd see him throwing chairs, and he, no person out. I was like, hold this guy's scary. You know, he's like the old school authority figure. When when he was coaching you guys, was there any funny moments? Was there any lighthearted stuff? Was it is he always like that, especially when he was younger and tough? Yeah, I, I think what you said, Michael, is that reputation was earned and preceded him, but there was a human side to him. And I got to see that because we would t- spend so much time together. Now right. he had that coaches at that point in time that's what they were what you just said most coaches now different degrees and bobby was like the at the highest level of that disciplinary look he came from army he coached at army so that was a big part of his life was discipline on time um, work hard no distractions do you told no questions right that's basically what he was about but we practiced three times. So there was a huge emphasis on discipline, unselfishness, teamwork. You don't ask quite. You do what you're told. Yes, that, that was in place in 1984. But what I saw from him, and he had tremendous respect, we talked about Michael Jordan, right, from North Carolina. Dean Smith was his coach. Right. Very similar principles, different delivery. Right. John Thompson. Right. Very similar foundation of, right. of beliefs and principles, right. a little different message. Right. Lou Carnesecca, they all respected each other. Got you. And they all were teaching the same thing, but their personalities were different. Got you. So, so the message was the same. Delivery, like you said, it might have been with a chair as opposed to, you know, a play call. Right. But I saw the human side of Bobby Knight. Um, and what really, I always tell people this, look, he was tough to play for, but I, it didn't matter. I played for coaches that I took the message and didn't really, if you told it to me quietly or you yelled it at me, it didn't matter. Let me get the message. I know what you want me to do. I'll go do it. But years later, my dad worked at uh, JFK. He was U.S. Customs Inspector. He worked there for 28 years. So back then, obviously pre-9-11, the airport was, you know, open and you kind of floated around, do what you want. After those Olympics, obviously my dad got to know Bobby, and when he was flying internationally, whether it be recruiting, uh, pleasure trips, when he would be coming through customs, he would look my dad up all the time. Oh, wow. Even on a commercial flight, my dad would come home, hey, Bobby Knight stopped by and say hello, which meant so much to me. Got so, you. So Bobby, to me, I'm not going to pretend like I know him all that well. I know him pretty well. He did most of his kindness and human uh, kindness things behind the scenes. And the stuff we saw, obviously his coaching was what we saw publicly. I got you. So I do believe there's a really cool, kind, hearted dude. Got you. That's that's my personal opinion. I got you. And and it got to me later on, not from coaching. Dude, hey man, came through the airport, took time out. Those things mean a lot. took, Took time out, it goes out of my dad. Right. That's cool with me. I like that. That's legit. I like that. I am Rappaport Podcast. There's a new way to bet on things outside of sports with Kalshi. Maybe you thought uh, on the future of TikTok. Will Congress ban it? Or won't they? Will Taylor Swift's album win album of the year? Will Biden's approval rating go up? 
Will it go down? Or inflation? You can trade futures on all of that and make money if you're correct. You're smart. You know things. Bet on it. $20 bonus if you go to Kalshi.com slash stereo. Spelled K-A-L-S-H-I and deposit $50. Kalshi.com slash stereo. Stereo, get in the game. There is no guarantee of performance. An investor could lose their entire investment. Investment fees, iHeartMedia does not recommend any investments. See further disclosures at Kalshi.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. I want to skip to when you got drafted. Your first year in the NBA, your first games, what's your oh shit moment I'm in the NBA? Like where you're playing against somebody you watched, you idolized, like you remember being on the court and you're like, you know, when I've talked to basketball players, you know, they always have that moment. I've had it with actors where I'm like, there's, I'm, we're working together now. We're Robert De Niro. You know, basketball is different because you're competing against each other. What do you remember your rookie season where you're like, oh, shit. Yeah, my, my two biggest, Dr. J and Kareem. They're my two biggest, like, wow. Like, this is insane. Dr. J, obviously... You know, ironically, he's from New York and Long Island. But to me, like, when I think of Dr. J, the first thing I think of when I was a kid was him in the ABA at the Nassau Coliseum. Like, that's some of the nastiest highlights ever, right? Basically carrying that league all by himself. So to I played against him my rookie year. And back then, we all flew commercial. So a lot of times the teams would obviously stay the night and a lot of times we'd all go to the same restaurant. I remember going to the place in Hayward, not from, from where we are right now, Hayward Fishery, where a lot of teams would go because the, the guy would take care of everyone. And I'm sitting, we had a big table and Doc is there, and I found myself just staring at him. He had this glow about him. This, he was Michael Jordan, but he had, the, he had it, man. He just had it. He was beyond a great basketball he player. He, he looked, it. he does, he's got that, that glow. 100%. He's got that awe about him. Yes, and imagine when he played, it was if, even if you, weirder. If you didn't watch sports and you saw him, you go, he's an act, he's something. He's something different. And that's what Doc was. And then Kareem, I remember playing at the Forum, and it was in-game, and somehow we were both checking in, like say like mid-third or something, we were at the scorer's table checking back into the game, and we're sitting at the floor, and I'm looking like, Holy shit, dude. This is the guy when I was at Palm Memorial. Every time I walked up to the gym, 
I saw this guy's jersey hanging there, and he's sitting next to me. Like, this is this is Chris. So those, those are the with two. the fucking goggles and everything. Yeah, just like you know, airplane the movie. I'm like, you know, what the hell is going on here? You know, this is. This Were you is, tripping out off of that? Yeah, I mean, because again, like every time I walked from the locker room to the gym, the practice of power, his jersey was sitting there. Like, the, and this was some some mystical figure that had broken every single record at every level of basketball. Power, UCLA, Milwaukee Bucks. And yeah, so those those were the two. Magic and Bird, yes, but, but, but I, in my mind, it was Doc and Kareem. Who gave you the business, like where you were like, holy shit, when you were in the league those first couple of years that where you were just like, what? Like, obviously, the Birds, and but like, what was another player uh, that you played against? I mean, you know, I was looking at some of the names, like Fat Sleever and Alvin Robertson. I mean, these are, like, who did you guard or that you were, like, in those first couple of years that you were like, fuck, this is a problem? Yeah. I mean, almost every night there was a problem for me athletically, right? I had to navigate that different level of athleticism, match it with skill, try to figure out how to you know, lay off someone enough where I didn't get beat off the dribble, yet also be able to contest. These were things I dealt with pretty much my whole career. But at, at the NBA, it gets uh, magnified by 100 because now you're talking about the greatest athletes. So defensively was always a, a tough thing for me. But I could counter that with offense, right? That's what That was my thing. Like, don't get killed on defense. Be smart. Be conscientious. Don't get blown by but you got to make them pay at the other end. Because I'm going out there getting six points, that's not going to work. But, so, you know, Michael Cooper, oh. Derek McKee, Shit. you know, the, Michael, Scotty, these long athletic guys that could guard you off the dribble, run you down off screen, ba basically shut you down, you know, single-handedly. Was Cooper a motherfucker to yeah, get? Yeah, Cooper, I remember one time, I, I saw Cooper recently, I told him, I said, man, to me, he, to like, we always talk about, and, and rightfully so, guys who are active, right? The Warriors got a bunch, you know, future Hall of Famers, which is cool. But there's also a guy, a lot of guys that are left off. So to me, there's like Cooper, like do we start putting guys in for defense and for team success, right? That's, which is cool. He's got to be in there. He's one of those guys. He was doing the the chase down block like LeBron does. Right. That was one of his things. Right. He was shooting threes. He was a six man and nasty. Mm -hmm. So I remember one time I played. It was a rookie. I stole it. I'm like kind of like yeah. I'm gonna, let me go down and dunk this thing. You know, didn't really go after it. He pinned my shit to the glass, man. Like man, get that shit out of here. So the athleticism, the ability to play individual defense, and then the competitive spirit, man. You know, so guys like that, I mentioned Derek McKee, these guys who all of a sudden you're seeing guys with 6'9", 6'10", who in college were playing like center. centers. Now they're actually switching on the perimeter and locking your ass down. Now you got to like go back to the drawing board and like, man, I got to not need more screens. I got to get these guys off me. When did your lack of speed, your lack of foot speed, become something you were very aware of that you knew you had to counteract? Were you always aware of it? No, I was, again, going back to my um, grade school coach. He always, he talked to me about that as being a fact, but not necessarily a liability, but being aware of it. 
And it also came down to anticipation. Did you try to fight it, though? Like, I'm going to make myself faster. Oh, yeah. 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 I always worked on it. I did a lot of training to did- just get a, just a, a nanosecond better. Just a little bit. And but staying in shape? Being, being more fit, yes. You know, especially on the offense, running more. You know what I mean? When I played, I was really conscious of never standing still. You were conscious of that? Never standing still, no doubt. Just trying to wear that person down mentally and physically to where at some point you would spring yourself open. It might not happen right away. It might not happen as much as you want it to. But if you keep doing it and you gain their reputation, that, that becomes a skill. That right. in itself is a skill. Right. Steph Curry, one of his skills is his endurance, his stamina, and the pressure he puts on his opponent physically and mentally to be locked in every second that you're playing against him. Right. So I was aware of it. I worked to compensate for that. The flip side is the fact that on offense, it's actually a strength. Right. Being slower on offense is actually a, a big-time strength. Big-time weakness on defense. But, again, to counter both, you figure it out. Talk to me about the Boston Garden, the Boston Celtics, and Larry Bird at that time. The Boston Garden, you know, there's all these myths, facts, fakes. There's ghosts. They didn't have hot water. They didn't have cold water. There's there's the air conditioning. They don't have air conditioning. Talk to me about playing in there and what Larry Bird meant to you as somebody who came before you and what his game was like when you're actually on the court with him. Yeah, so Larry and Magic obviously played in that 1979 final, NCAA final. I think to this day, the most watched college basketball game. So they had a huge impact on on college basketball and, and the way it's viewed and, you know, the impact of their, their greatness and, and um, how the players were – introduced as individual stars at that point in time. That's what David Stern wound up doing in the NBA, promoting individuals as opposed to teams. Worked uh, magically. But Bird, again, you know, you try and emulate someone like you. Yeah, I wish I could have been Dr. J. That wouldn't happen. You know, so I was told to watch John Havlicek, Larry Bird, you know, Magic to a degree was his his passing. Because he wasn't fast. Um, right, guys that would play in, you know, more like what I was capable of doing. But Larry Bird, you know, they said he was slow, couldn't jump. You know, there was a lot of similarities there. So watching him, again, you know, before social media, um, the coach from Arkansas, what's his name? Um, Nolan Richardson. Nolan Richardson. Nolan, great, great coach. One of the great. So Nolan Richardson. So anyway. The legend was, again, before social media, you heard about this guy from French Lick, Indiana right. State, they're 29-0. Like, so anyway, Magic and Larry had the, probably as big an impact as anybody on the transition of the NBA. But it started in that 1979 final game. Yeah, so I watched him, tried to emulate him, heard about his work ethic, things like that. You know, so And then the, when we played against him, you talk about the Boston Garden – it was as far as aesthetically and the actual building was a shithole, but it was a museum, dude. Right. It was a museum. It was. It didn't matter that there was the floor had dead spots. That was it, man. It's the Boston Garden. I had played there in college. We played Boston College there a few times. So, yeah, the banners, the history, Bill Russell, Red Auerbach. 
John Havlicek. You know, the, all the greats played there. It was, you know, a staple, you know, of the NBA. So it was a museum. So it didn't matter. All the else didn't matter. But it was true. There were dead spots in the floor. It was really cold because the Boston Bruins played the night before. Uh-huh. Um, there was two showers. Only one worked. Uh-huh. You know, that that's all true. Look, with the Lakers, I think it was like 1984, uh, five or six. It's like 113 degrees in there. Right. So that's all true. Right. But it's still, it's the Boston Garden. You know, we got, we went to play there. We went to play there uh, probably like 1988 or 89, Mitch Richmond's rookie year. We go in there, we have a day off of practicing and, you know, looking at all the banners, you know, everyone's up there. And there's a number 19. There's no names, just numbers. Right. So we're like, yo, Mitch, look, number 19, you know, he's like, who's that? Dude, that's our coach, man. That's Nelly, man. They retired. He goes, Nelly played? That's. <laughs> Mitch didn't even know he played. That's fucking funny. <laughs> that is funny. It might have been why Nelly traded him. <laughs> that was it. That was the breaking <laughs> point. Off. That's funny. Yeah. All right. I'm going to jump into dream team because we can't talk i'm gonna end it there's so much shit i could talk to you about well we'll pick it up in new york man we give it part two but the dream team yeah give me something it's been talked about books documentaries on time what was that like give me a story that's never been told those games were they as competitive as they said like what was the climate like playing in that ge- in those well, games and that team well i said earlier right and the hysteria of it right so i said earlier like in 1984 you know at that point in time, it was the only time you get a chance to play in the Olympics. So it was the pressure to make that team. Who would have thought eight years later, it's opened up to pros and miraculously, timing, which we have no control over, I'm playing at a really high level. So that that alone was miraculous. The selection of the team, like I said, you know, at that point in time, I was playing at a really high level for a few years in a row. The international game was still a little different than the NBA, so there was a little more specific player that you needed internationally. Now the game is almost identical, but back then it was still, you know, a different type of style. So obviously the selection of the team happens. For me, the biggest moment for me in my, in my NBA career because of all those things, the things I had been through, the thing, fought back to get playing at a high level. And then this, this magical thing happens where FIBA and the NBA declares NBA players are eligible. So as far as, you know, we all know who's on that team. Incredible. All the legends of the game. A lot we just talked about. Magic, Bird, Jordan, Ewing, Robinson, Barkley. And now you've grown up with these guys in a way. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, well, you know, Magic and Bird are the elder statesmen, guys we all looked up to, right? Uh, Patrick and Michael, I had played on 84 together, so we're we're reunited for that team. And then played against... You know, Carl and John, David, Clyde, all these other guys are our peers who we competed against. But to get to spend that summer together with a with the group of those guys, to get to know them away from the court, because you know, we spent a lot of time obviously together, not just because, you know, the time frame, but also being in a hotel, not so much secluded, but, you know, you, you had a, we just hung together a lot. You know, there wasn't a whole lot. Guys were going out and doing their thing, but our families were there. We had our kids. Right. It, it was really a, a really cool time. 
everybody was really secure in who they were. Their careers were established. No one was trying to build a brand. Right. <clears throat> it was just a team. Right. And that was the coolest thing to me. The coolest thing was we became a team like that. And part of that, the reason for that was everyone understood their, their role. Everyone under, was very secure and comfortable who they were and just go out there and do your thing. Sounds simple. Didn't always happen. We've seen other teams not right. be able to do that. But the character, the, the awareness of all those players was really cool to play with and to be around even socially. Right. Um, we made lifelong friendships. But as far as like competitively, I remember we had a report to San Diego. That was our first report for training camp. First session. Everyone's kind of on eggshells, getting out of each other's way. I remember Magic kicked the ball up in the stands. I said, yo, this is fucking bullshit, dude. We're fucking bullshit. Like, you know, you talk about leadership and awareness. Like, let's fucking, yo, everyone fucking play now. Don't be worrying about what you, everyone do their thing, right? So that was like practice one. Uh, then we had a few good practices, and we had the legendary scrimmage with those young fellas, Chris Webber, Grant Hill, uh, Bobby Hurley, all those guys, and they beat us in that scrimmage. What the fuck? How did they well, beat you guys? I mean, you watched the documentary, and I wasn't even aware of it at the time. Not that it mattered that time, but look, you're talking about, first of all, they were all talented. They were. Yes. And they were kids, right? But they were talented. Those guys wound up all being stars. Of so, course. So they're right there. Of course. They're obviously a little hungrier. Right, right, right. All that stuff. Um, so they, they give them their credit, right? They, they did their thing. Lo and behold, Michael did not play. You know, at the, in the moment, didn't really realize that, you know, uh, in the documentary, Coach K made that very clear that Chuck Daly knew exactly what he was doing. And the next day we beat him by 50. But again, you know, I think you got to give them their credit. They, and, and a lot of those guys, you know, went on to have am amazing careers. So that, that was cool. We had to go to Portland, play that qualifier. We had to qualify for the Olympics, by the way. Right. Because we lost in 88. Go to Portland, knock those games out, take a little break. Then we were flying from um, from New York to Nice. Yes. To, uh, what do you call it, Monaco. I have a little training camp there. Right. So we're there for a few days, practicing and stuff. We, we played the um, French national team. Had a subpar performance. Again, you know, guys in casinos, whatever, right. you know, blah, blah, blah. And then Chuck Daly, who was just one of the nicest guys I ever met, you know, blue collar, had that charisma, you know. He, like your uncle, but also like, you know, the chief. Great hair. Good dude, man. Good dude. Sharp. Just just a really cool guy. Perfect guy for that job. You know, senses were kind of like not ready, maybe. So calls a practice in the morning after everyone's been out or whatever. And instead of practicing, just divides the team up. Like wants to get that edge going. So, uh, you know, Michael, I think I was with Michael. And he's, he splits Michael and Magic and whatever. The, I don't know exactly what the teams were, but the, now Michael and Magic are going at it, like verbally, physically, and really getting after it. Um, so that was, you know, one, one of the coolest closed gyms I've ever been in my life. Really? And you had Carl going against Charles, Michael versus Magic, uh, all these different men, David and Patrick. And what about you? Who are you trying I was probably with Scotty. I was probably matching with Scotty, I would think. You know? 
But what dominated was Michael and Magic. That dominated the gym. And right before it got to be too much, Chuck Daly, he's like, oh, we got it. Now we're ready. Just got that, that edge going. But all, all through that summer, Michael was, you know, he's the best player in the world by far. He just was, you know. Magic was the best player in the world. Right. And was still really good. And was not just going to hand that mantle to Michael. You know, he made Michael take it from him. Uh-huh. Which he did. Uh-huh. You know, I remember a few times, you know, Larry, at that point in time, his back was bothering him. And, you know, he's playing sparingly, but, you know, still really good. You know, he'd sit out some practices and, you know, if – Michael and Magic going at. I'd look over at Larry, and he's kind of like shaking his head, like, "No, no, no, it's over, dude. <laughs> he's the man. Like, he got it. It's over. Yeah. So it was pretty cool seeing that. But again, it was used in a constructive manner. I got you. It, it wasn't. It didn't get too far. No, nah, it was strictly out of respect and admiration, and it actually, you know, made the team better. All right, that's it, Molly. We talked hour and 15 minutes I could go on and on and on I mean there's people are gonna be like why didn't you ask this why didn't you ask we'll go this part two in New York part right? two in New York how much fucking how much can I do it's an hour and 15 minutes okay tired got pickleball to play <laughs> we got a show tonight to see we got shows we got pickleball tournaments we got games we got naps Chris Mullen I am Rapport Stereo Pockets I appreciate it my pleasure Mike anytime Chris Mullen for joining me on the podcast. You heard him. He said in New York, we'll do part two. That was the 1000th episode of the I Am Rapport Stereo Podcast. Tell a friend to tell a friend about the world's most disruptive podcast, the I Am Rapport Stereo Podcast. We started the way we ended. We ended the way we started. Miles Jordan, a.k.a. the Bleach Brothers, a.k.a. the Dust Brothers. Take me out here with something real nice, yes. Take me out of here with something real loud, yes. But most importantly, end this puppy with something real funky. I am Rappaport Stereo Podcast. 1,000 in the can. Here's to the next 1,000. Out. There's a new way to bet on things outside of sports with Kalshi. Maybe you thought uh, on the future of TikTok. Will Congress ban it? Or won't they? Will Taylor Swift's album win album of the year? Will Biden's approval rating go up? Will it go down? Or inflation? You can trade futures on all of that and make money if you're correct. You're smart. You know things. Bet on it. $20 bonus if you go to Kalshi.com slash stereo. Spelled K-A-L. S-H-I and deposit $50. Kalshi.com slash stereo. Get in the game. There is no guarantee of performance. An investor could lose their entire investment. Investment fees. iHeartMedia does not recommend any investments. See further disclosures at Kalshi.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. 
he says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.